0: Hey up, it's me, Charlie, and today I'm going to be gracing you all with my summary, reading, and analysis of Homer's The Odyssey, an integral epic of ancient literature and sequel to the Iliad. I'll be structuring this first of many episodes into the aforementioned three segments, with time codes provided generously by myself to any of you if you wish to skip to a specific part. This podcast/slash/audiobook hybrid will be hosted, performed, edited, and guest-starring me, Charlie, and I hope this proves either incredibly helpful or mildly amusing. Without further ado then, let us begin, shall we? Right, so this is the summary slash uh, context section of uh, this podcast slash Audiobook book hybrid i don't know what to call this it's this section here you might be able to tell already is pretty free form it's just me uh, laying all my thoughts and the summary in my own words of book one of the odyssey the first book of the odyssey i, I know right shocker and um basically i'm just going to go through a bit of the context and uh, what happens in book one here all right so basically the odyssey is pretty important Like, as a whole, to world literature, Western literature and ancient literature, all that stuff, really. It's a sequel to the Iliad, as I've said before, and it follows the journey of Odysseus, who is a character from the Iliad, um, as he returns home from the Trojan Wars um, to his family in Ithaca, Um, but also along the way ends up having an odyssey and Odyssey being a journey where only one person comes back, because uh, reasons. And right now, at the very start of the text, he is uh, shipwrecked on the island of Megidjia, his family is kind of in the ruins, and it's not a really good situation. Uh, But it's going to improve, I swear. So basically... The Odyssey begins with an invocation from the Muse, of course. It is ancient literature, after all. Um, but it probably begins with a uh, conversation uh, between Zeus and Athena, slash Athene, whatever you want to call it, doesn't really matter. Um, Zeus being the king of the gods, obviously, and Athena, slash Athene, being the goddess of strategy and wisdom and cool stuff like that. Um, and basically, the conversation entails her convincing Zeus to stop being so mean to Odysseus and let him come home. Uh, Zeus agrees, and uh, they both go their separate ways to go and fix this situation. Um, So then we follow Athena, uh, traveling to Ithaca, um, Odysseus's um, kingdom, and sees it in absolute tatters. Uh, Then she goes on to find his son, uh, Odysseus' son, I mean, uh, Telemachus, tells him to basically be a man and sends him off to go try and find out where his dad is even though she knows where it is and could tell. It's, it doesn't matter um, and basically we get to see the suitors uh, being annoying and Penelope being sad and then Telemachus telling her not to be sad because he's a man now well he's becoming a man now basically oh and we also get to see Poseidon in here, uh, patting with the Ethiopians uh, instead of antagonizing Odysseus for once, him being the chief antagonist of the story after all, uh, for reasons that'll be explained later. So, yes, that's book one. I'm gonna move on now to start recording this uh, audio book kind of section. You, oh, God. Uh, pray for me, please. <laughs> Tell me, Muse, of that man of many resources, who wandered far and wide after sacking the holy citadel of Troy. Many the men whose cities he saw, whose ways he learned. Many the sorrows he suffered at sea, while trying to bring himself and his friends back alive. Yet, despite his wishes, he failed to save them, because of their own unwisdom foolishly eating the cattle of Helios, the sun, So that God denied them their return. Tell us of these things, beginning where you will, goddess, daughter of Zeus." Now all the others who had escaped destruction had reached their homes, and were free of sea and war. He alone, longing for wife and home, Calypso, the nymph, kept in her echoing cave, desiring him for a husband, Not even when the changing seasons brought the year the gods had chosen for his return to Ithaca was he free from danger and among friends. Yet all the gods pitied him, except Poseidon, who continued his restless anger against godlike Odysseus until he reached his own land at last. Now though, Poseidon was visiting the distant Ethiopians, the most remote of all, a divided people some of whom live where Hyperion sets the others, where he rises, to accept a headcomb of sacrificial bulls and rams, and there he sat, enjoying the feast. But the rest of the gods had gathered in the halls of Olympian Zeus. The father of the gods and men was first to address them, for he was thinking of flawless Aegistus, who far-famed Orestes, Agamemnon's son, had killed, and, thinking of him, he spoke to the immortals. How surprising that men blame the gods and say their troubles come from us though they for their own unwisdom find suffering beyond what is fated just as agistus beyond what was fated, took the wife of Agamemnon, son of Atreus, and murdered him when he returned. Though he knew the end would be a complete disaster, since we sent Hermes, keen-eyed slayer of Argus, to warn him not to kill the man or court his wife, as Orestes would avenge Agamemnon once he reached manhood and longed for his own land. So Hermes told him, but despite his kind intent he could not move Aegistus' heart, and Aegistus has paid the price now for it all. Athene, the bright-eyed goddess, answered him at once, Father of us all, son of Cronos, highest king, clearly that man deserved to be destroyed, so let all be destroyed who act as he did. But my heart aches for Odysseus, wise but ill-fated, who suffers far from his friends on an island deep in the sea. The island is densely wooded, and a goddess lives there a child of malevolent Atlas, he who knows the depths of the sea and supports the great columns that separates earth and sky. It is his daughter who detains that unlucky, sorrowful man. She lures him, always, with soft, seductive words, intending him to forget Ithaca. But Odysseus, who yearns for the mere sight of the smoke rising from his own country, only longs to die. Yet Olympian, your heart is unmoved. Did he win no favour with the sacrifices he made to you by the Argive ships on the wide plains of Troy? Why do you will this man so much pain, Zeus?' cloud governing Zeus, answered her then, My child, what words escape your lips? How could I ever forget godlike Odysseus, who exceeds all mortals in wisdom, and also in sacrifice to the deathless gods who inhabit the broad heavens? It is Poseidon, the earth-bearer, who is always filled with implacable anger against him because of godlike Polyphemus, the strongest Cyclops of all, whom Odysseus blinded, the nymph Thusa bore him, daughter of Porcus, who rules the barren sea. She slept with Poseidon in the hollow caves. Since the blinding, Poseidon, the earth shaker, though he will not kill him, keeps Odysseus far from his native land. Come, let all here plan how he might come home. Then Poseidon will relent, since he'll not be able to contend alone against all the deathless gods to ever. Cloud-gathering Zeus answered her then. My child, what words escape your lips? How can I ever forget godlike Odysseus, who exceeds all mortals in wisdom, and also in sacrifice to the deathless gods who inhabit the broad heavens? It is Poseidon, the earth-bearer, who is always filled with implacable anger against him, because of godlike Polyphemus, the strongest Cyclops of all, whom Odysseus blinded. The nymph Thusa bore him, Daughter of Porcus, who rules the barren sea, she slept with Poseidon in the hollow caves. Since that blinding, Poseidon, the earth-shaker, though he will not kill him, keeps Odysseus far from his native land. Come, let all here plan how he might come home. Then Poseidon will relent, since he'll not be able to contend alone against all the deathless gods together. The goddess, bright-eyed Athene, answered him, Father of us all. Son of Cronos, highest king, if it truly pleases the blessed gods of wise Odysseus to return home, let us send Hermes, the messenger, slayer of Argos, to the isle of Aegidia, so he can tell the nymph with the lovely tresses of our unalterable decision, that long-suffering Odysseus may come home. Meanwhile, I will go to Ithaca to stir his son, and encourage him to call the long-haired Achaeans together, and speak his mind to the suitors who slaughter his flock of sheep and his shambling cattle with twisted horns. Then I will lead him to Sparta and Sandy Pylos to gain news of his loyal father's return, if he can, and so win praise. So saying, she bound to her feet her beautiful sandals of imperishable gold that would carry her over the waves, over the wide lands as swiftly as the wind, and she took her heavy spear, great and strong, with its tip of sharpened bronze, with which she destroys the ranks of men and heroes when that daughter of a mighty father is angered. Then she flew down from the height of Olympus, and reaching Ithaca stood at Odysseus's gate, at the threshold of the court. She appeared as a visitor, Mentes, chief of the Taphians, bronze spear in hand, there she found the insolent suitors, sitting in front of the doors, on hawk's hide, from a beast they had slaughtered themselves, playing at counters, their pages and squires were busy mixing water and wine in bowls, others were wiping tables with sponges, then laying them, while others were setting out plentiful servings of meat. Godlike like Telemachus, sitting troubled amongst the suitors, imagining how his noble father might arrive from somewhere, throw the suitors from the palace, win honour and rule his own again, was first to see her. Thinking of it, sitting among the suitors, he saw Athene, and went straight to the doorway, ashamed a stranger should wait so long at the gates. Approaching her, he clasped her right hand, took her spear of bronze, and spoke to her winged words, "'Welcome, stranger, here you will find hospitality, and after you have eaten, you may tell us why you are here.' At this he led the way, and Pallas Athene followed. Once inside the high hall, he took the spear and set it in a polished rack by a tall pillar with other spears that belonged to loyal Odysseus. He led Athene herself to a handsome, richly carved chair, spread a linen cloth over it, and seated her there with a footstool for her feet. He drew up an ornate stool for himself as well, away from the suitors, lest the stranger should shun the food, annoyed by the din, finding himself in a crowd of insolent men and so he might ask news of his absent father. Next, a maid brought water in a fine gold jug and poured it over a silver basin so they could rinse their hands, then drew up a polished table. A housekeeper silently brought them bread and various delicacies, drawing liberally on her store, and a carver lifted different plates of meats and set them down with gold cups besides them, while a steward, constantly walking by, poured the wine. The insolent suitors entered, and sat in rows on stools and chairs. Squires poured water over their hands, while maids piled bread in baskets beside them, and pages filled bowls with wine, and they reached for the good things spread before them. Then, when the suitors had satisfied hunger and thirst, their thoughts turned elsewhere, to song and dance, since these things crown a feast. A herald placed a fine lyre in the hands of Phemius, whom the suitors had forced to sing for them, and he struck the chords to begin his pleasant song. Then Telemachus spoke to bright-eyed Athene, his head close to hers so the others could not hear. My friend, will you be angered at what I say? These men amuse themselves with music and song freely, since they consume another's wealth without repayment, one whose white bones are tumbling in the waves or rotting in the rain on some far shore. If they saw him here in Ithaca, they would pray for swifter feet, rather than rich clothes and gold. But now he is dead on an evil fate, and we have no comfort, even if someone on earth were to claim he would return, the day he could is past. But tell me this, and speak truly. Who are you, and where do you come from? What city is yours? Who are your parents? What kind of vessel brought you, and whom did the sailors say they were? And how did they land on Ithaca, for I doubt you came on foot? And tell me this too. Is this truly your first visit here, or are you a friend of my father's? Many are those who entered our house as guests, for he too travelled widely among men. Then the goddess, bright-eyed Athene, answered, Well, I will tell you all openly. I am Mentes, wise Anchilius's son, lord of the sea-going Tephians. Now, as ye see, with me ship and crew I beach here, in my journey over the wine-dark sea, to foreign-speaking Temesy, trading for copper and carrying glittering iron, my ship lies over there, away from the city, next to open land, in Rathron harbour, and below wooded neon. Let us call each other friend, as our fathers did, friends of old. Go and ask that old Laertes, if you like, who no longer comes to the palace, they say, but endures his sorrows far off in the fields, with an aged woman for a servant. Who serves his food and drink, When weariness grips his limbs, as he toils among the slopes of his vineyard. I came, because men said that Odysseus was here among his people, but the gods seem to have prevented his returning, since he has not vanished from the earth yet. I imagine he is alive and a prisoner on some island in the wide sea, held by cruel and savage folk, who keep him there by force. Though I am no seer, nor trained in augury, I will prophesy to you what the immortal gods put in my mind, and what I believe will be. Though iron shackles hold him, he will not be kept from his home for much longer. A man of many resources, he will find a way to return. But tell me truly of you, tall as you are, are really Odysseus's son? Your head and your fine eyes are amazingly like him. "'for we were often together before he set off for Troy, "'where the bravest of the Argives sailed in their hollow ships, "'but I have never seen Odysseus since that day, nor he me.' "'Wise Telemachus answered, "'I will speak honestly. My mother says I am his son, but I do not know, "'for none can be certain of his own parentage. "'If only I had been the son of some lucky man who spent all day among his own possessions!' As it is, they say, since you ask, that I am born of the unluckiest of mortal men. Then the goddess, bright-eyed Athene, replied, Yet with Penelope as your mother, the gods have ensured your line will not be unknown. But tell me in truth, what is this feast, this folk? Why is this needed? Is it a banquet, or a wedding celebration? It's clearly not one where each brings his own provisions, since imperiously, insolently, they feast in your house. Any man of sense who mixed with them would be angered at the sight of these shameful actions. Then wise Telemachus answered, Stranger, since you asked the question, our house once seemed made for wealth and honour when Odysseus was with his people. But the gods have willed otherwise since then with their dark designs, for unlike other men, they have made him vanish. If I had been killed among his friends at Troy, or died in the arms of friends with the war ended, his death itself would grieve me less. Then the Achaeans would have built his tomb, and he would have won a fine name for his son to inherit. In fact, the harpies have snatched him, without trace. He is beyond sight and hearing, and leaves me in sorrow and tears. Nor do I sigh and groan for him alone, for the gods have granted me other painful troubles, O the princes who rule the islands, Dulichium, Same, and Mileticinthus, and O the lords of Rocky call caught my mother and consume my wealth with their feasts. Soon they will destroy me too. Moved to anger, Pallas Athene spoke. Ah, you have dire need of lost Odysseus to set hands on these shameless suitors. If only he was standing at the palace gates now, with his helmet and shield and twin spears, just when I first saw him at my house, drinking joyously, on his way home from a fiery, after his visit to Ilus, murmurous son. Odysseus went there as well, in his swift ship, in search of a deadly poison to smear on the tips of his bronze-headed arrows. Ilus was in awe of the deathless gods, and refused him. "'but my father, who loved him dearly, did not. "'If only Odysseus, I say, as he was, "'could confront the suitors, "'they would meet a death swiftly and a dark wedding. "'But indeed, it lies in the lap of the gods "'whether he will return and take vengeance in his place or not, "'but I urge you yourself to plan "'how to drive these suitors from the house. "'Come, listen, and note my words. "'Call the Achaean lords together tomorrow. "'Speak to them all with the gods for witness.' Tell the suitors to disperse, each to his home, and if your mother's heart urges her to marry, let her go back to her great father's house. Tell the suitors to disperse, each to his home, and if your mother's heart urges her to marry, let her go back to her great father's house, where they will ready a wedding feast and a wealth of gifts fitting for a well-beloved daughter. And I will give you good advice if you will hear me. Man the best ship you have with twenty oarsmen. Go and seek news of your absent father. Some mortals may tell you, or perhaps a rumour sent by Zeus will bring news to men. Go to Pylos first, and question the noble Nestor, then to Sparta, to yellow-haired Menelaus, last to the bronze-cladded Achaeans, to return home. If you hear your father is living, and sailing home, then however troubled you are, endure for another year, but if you hear he is dead, return to your own land, build a mound, with all the funeral rites, generous ones as is fitting, and give your mother away to a new husband. When you have settled and done all this, use heart and mind to plan how to kill the suitors in your palace, openly or by guile, since it is not right for you to follow childish ways, being no more a child. Perhaps you have not heard what famed Orestes won among men, destroying his father's murderer, cunning agistus for killing his noble father, you too take courage, my friend, since I see you are tall and fine, so that many a man unborn will praise you. But now I must go to me swift ship, and me crew who will be weary of waiting. Take note yourself of my words, and consider them. Wise Telemachus replied, Stranger, truly, you speak kindly like a father to his son, and I will never forget your words. But stay a while, though you are eager to be gone.' so that when you have bathed and eased your heart, you can go to your ship in good spirits, Take no rich and beautiful gift from me as a keepsake, such as strangers give to strangers in friendship. So the goddess, bright-eyed Athene, spoke, and vanished, soaring upwards like a bird. In his heart she had stirred fortitude and daring, and made him think of his father even more. He felt what had passed in his spirit, and was awed, realising a god had been with him, and God like himself he at once rejoined the suitors. As they sat listening in silence As they sat listening in silence as they sat listening in silence, the famous minstrel sang to As they sat listening in silence, as they sat, listening in silence, as they sat, listening in silence, as they sat listening in silence. As they sat, listening in silence, the famous minstrel sang. As they sat, listening in silence, the famous minstrel sang to them of the Achaeans' troubled return from Troy, inflicted by Pallas Athene. Wise Penelope, Icarius' son, heard this marvellous song from her chamber and ascended the stairs, accompanied by her two maids. As she neared the suitors, she drew her shining veil across her vase. As they sat listening in silence, the famous minstrel sang to them of the Achaeans' troubled return from Troy inflicted by Tap. As they sat listening in silence, the famous minstrel sang to them of the Achaeans' troubled return. As they sat listening in silence. As they sat listening in silence, the famous minstrel sang to them of the Achaeans' troubled return from Troy, inflicted by Pallas Athene. Wise Penelope, Icarius' son. Fuck. As they sat, listening in silence, the famous minstrel sang to them of the Achaeans' trouble. As they sat, listening in silence, the famous minstrel sang to them of the Achaeans' troubled return from Troy, inflicted by Pallas Athene. Wise Penelope, Icarius's son, heard this marvellous song from her chamber, and ascended the stairs, accompanied by her two maids. As she neared the suitors, she drew her shining veil across her face, and stopped by the doorpost of the well-made hall, a loyal handmaid on either side. Then, with tear-filled eyes, she spoke to the divine bard, Phemius, you know many of a tale of man and gods, that the bards made famous, with which to charm us mortals. Sing one of those while you sit here, as they drink their wine in silence. But end this sad song, that always troubles the heart in my breast, since above all women I bear a sadness not to be forgotten. I ever remember my husband's dear face, he whose fame resounds through Hellas to the heart of Argos. Wise Telemachus answered her. Mother, why grudge the good bad his right to please us, as the spirit stirs him? Bads are not to blame, surely. It is Zeus we must blame, who deals with each eater of bread as he wishes. No one can be angry if this man sings the Danaean's dark fate, since men always praise the most newest song they hear. Suffer your heart and mind to listen, for Odysseus was not alone in failing to return from Troy. Many other perished too. So go to your quarters now, and intend your own duties at Loom and Spindle, and order your maids about their tasks. Let men worry about such things, and I especially, since I hold the authority in this house. Seized with wonder, she retired to her own room, taking her son's wise words to heart. Up to her high chamber she went, accompanied by her maids, and there she wept for Odysseus, her dear husband, till bright-eyed Athene veiled her eyelids with sweet sleep. But throughout the shadowy hall, the suitors created uproar, with every man praying he might bed her. Wise Telemachus was then the first to speak. My mother suitors, proud in your insolence, let us enjoy the feast for now, but without disturbance, since it is a lovely thing to listen to such a bard as this, with his godlike voice. Then, in the morning... Then, in the morning, let us take our seats in the assembly, so I can declare to you all you must leave the palace. Feast elsewhere, move from house to house, and eat your own provisions. If it seems preferable, more profitable to you, to waste one man's estate without restitution, then do so. But I meanwhile will call on the eternal gods, hoping that Zeus may grant a day of reckoning. Then you will be wasted in my halls, without restitution.' So he spoke, and they bit their lips amazed at Telemachus's bold speech. Then Antinous, Eupitheus' son, replied Telemachus, the gods themselves must have taught you this bold high style. May the son of Cronos never make you king of Ithaca's isle, though it is your heritage by birth. Then wise Telemachus answered him Will it anger you, Antinous, if I say that I should be pleased to accept it from Zeus's hands? Do you think, in truth, it is the worst fate for a man? It is no bad thing to be a king. At once, your house grows rich. Will it anger you, Antinous, if I say that I should be pleased to accept it from Zeus's hand? Do you think, in truth, it is the worst fate for a man? It It is no bad thing to be a king. Will it anger you, Antinous, if I say I should be pleased to accept it from Zeus's hand? Do you think, in truth, it is the worst fate for a man? It is no bad thing to be a king. At once your house grows rich, and you are held in higher honour. But there are many other kings of the Achaeans, young and old, in Ithaca's isle. Perhaps one of them will have the honour, since noble Odysseus is dead. But I will be master of my own house, and of the servants noble Odysseus gathered for me. Then Eurymachus, Polybus's son, replied, Surely Telemachus, the question for who will be king in Ithaca's isle is in the lap of the gods, and as for your possessions, keep them, and be ye master in your own house. While men live in Ithaca, let no man come and snatch your possessions from you, violently or against your will. But I am prompted to ask, dear sir, where has that stranger come from? What country does he claim as his? Where are his kin and native land? Does he bring news of your father's arrival? Or did he come here on his own account? How he leapt up and vanished. He would not wait to be known, though he seems no common man. Wise Telemachus answered him, saying, Eurymachus, surely my father has lost his chance to return. I no longer put my faith in rumours. Wherever they come from, nor do I note the prophecies my mother may hear from some diviner she has called to the palace. The stranger is a friend of my father's from Taphos. He announced he is Mentes, the son of wise Anchialus, lord of the sea going Taphians. So Telemachus spoke, yet in his heart he knew it was the deathless goddess. Now they turned to dancing, heartfelt song and enjoyment, till nightfall. Then they each went to his house to rest. But Telemachus went to his bed with his mind full of thoughts, to his room high above the fine courtyard, with its clear view, and faithful Eurycleia, daughter of Ops, peace and All son, carrying a blazing torch, waited on him. Laertes had bought her himself long ago, when she was still quite young, at the cost of twenty oxen, and honoured her in his palace as he honoured his loyal wife, Never lying with her for fear of his wife's anger, now she carried the blazing torches for Telemachus, since of all the women it was she who loved him most, having nursed him as a child. He opened the door to the well-made room, and sitting on the bed, took off his soft tunic, and placed it in the wise old woman's hands. Folding and smoothing the tunic, she hung it on a peg, by the wooden bedstead, and went out of the room, closing the door by its silver handle, shooting the bolt by the means of its leather thong. There, all night long, wrapped in a woolen fleece, Telemachus planned in his mind the journey Athene proposed. Woo. Alright then. That is the end of the audiobook uh, segment of this whole thing. Uh, That took me ages, almost five hours. It's fine, we'll get better over time. So... This is now officially the analysis section of this pseudo-podcast thing I've got going on. Um, you might be able to tell it's pretty free, uh, freeform, like the uh, stu- summary uh, bit. It, it's so freeform that I'm going to keep those stutters uh, and such uh, in this. But without further ado, I should probably start talking about the text itself. So, book one is pretty boring. <laughs> Well, at least I think, in comparison to the rest of the Odyssey, no one remembers this part. It's all the cyclopses and harpies and stuff, but it's really, really key to the core story of the Odyssey. We see a lot of themes being introduced, a lot of foreshadowing uh, being introduced. Uh, Even in the first lines, in the invocation, we instantly get a section being foreshadowed, that being in um, the end of book 12, I believe, with the whole uh, cattle situation, uh, Helios's cattle, um, which is really key when understanding the, co- the kind of literary uh, style that Homer went for in this. But there is a lot in here that is really key thematically for the time. Uh, we get divine intervention almost instantly, uh, with Athena and Zeus uh, going at it and interfering with the lives of mortal men. Um, but we also get some pretty human elements as well. We get introduced very, very quickly to the concept of Xenia, as in hospitality. We get to, show, we get to see uh, good Xenia in the form of uh, Telemachus. Well, to whatever extent you can do. We get to see bad Xenia uh, from the suitors. And we get to see good Xenia as well from Athene as a guest. Because guest Xenia and host Xenia are classified as two different things. We also get to witness as well the beginning of the journey for Telemachus in being a man. Um, He starts his whole arc of becoming stronger uh, across the play. Uh, you can see here though he's pretty weak still he can barely stand up to the suitors we'll get to see later um, how he cries in front of them Um, but we get to see the beginning of where he is now that by the time we finish this book we'll get to see where he is going to end up being this kind of pseudo badass like um, Odysseus I like the word pseudo word of the day I think Uh, well not word it's Anyways, I think also for this section, uh, we have to consider Penelope as well. Her role here is very key. And we can also consider uh, Felsen and Slatkins' work where they reflect upon the impact of the war on the wife. Yes, I am bringing scholars into this. No, you cannot stop me. Um, But I think that is one of the key themes uh, here, one of the key scholars that you can use here as well but I can also use here as well um, Simon Goldhill's uh, being a man kind of shtick, where being a man is uh, uh, the kind of the main message and focus in the the poem and all that. Ooh, as well, I think it's very key to remember uh, disguise in this section. It'll become much more important when we consider Odysseus, but right now, the first disguise we get introduced to is one from Athene. It's not the last time she does it either, uh, where she disguises herself as Mentes. That's why I used a different voice for Mentes. doesn't explain why I tried to do a brummy accent, but uh, we can't always get what we want, I guess. Um, but the theme of disguise and revelation keeps on popping up in the Odyssey, Um, I wouldn't say it's as big as some of the other themes here but it's really key uh, for uh, I think just making this text quite interesting and uh, adding a layer of mystery and dramatic irony uh, to it all which adds to the greatness of the poem as a whole I think. But yeah um, other than that uh, and the invocation from the muse as well uh, being very key uh, literarily. Um, there are also a bunch of very small, uh, like, minute things that you can see throughout this entire uh, section to do with how characters interact. Uh, we get to see the, the suitors being evil, uh, conniving little uh, scumbags, and we get to see as well uh, some actual functioning elements of the oikos but ma- mainly outweighed by how dysfunctional the oikos as in sorry the household is uh as a whole you get to see some of the good maids like hughry claire right at the end but we also get to see how the suitors have completely screwed up the vast majority of it as they always do never invite suitors to your house life lesson of the odyssey folks <sighs> i think that's as much as i can say right now in summary um i think i can close this off now Well, so this is the end of this podcast i'm brave enough now to admit this is most definitely a podcast um i'd like to thank you for listening to this entire thing again i'll be giving out timestamps where it's applicable when I've got this all fully formed together and I hope to see you uh, when I cover book five in the near future. I promise I will do it. This is going to become a, a running thing. It's helpful for my revision and also pretty fun and I hope you enjoy listening to my ramblings and also terrible impressions of these different characters. Have a good one.